You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Jill Huffman. And today we have an absolute treat for everybody listening. We are sitting down with someone that we learned about from his partner, previous guest Mandy, also known as Hagwitch on Instagram. Their collections together are varied, but immaculate and extensive and incredible. But there's another very fascinating facet that this person has too. He's the curator and owner of the Salem Witchboard Museum and also has an odd collection related to KFC that you won't be expecting. We are excited to sit down and get over the history and lore of not only the Ouija board, but also their other collections. Welcome to the show, John Kozik. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Thanks for being here. Like I was saying before we were recording, I have had it in my calendar since we talked to Mandy to reach back out to you and to have you on the show. So thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Of course. I'm happy to talk about this stuff. I uh, have the museum and I get to talk to a lot of people, a lot of obsessed collectors as well. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it doesn't matter what you collect. I love talking about how you collect. See, he's one of us. I know he gets it. And that's, you know, that's how I am too. People will, I'll start to talk about stuff and they're like, oh, I don't have collections like you. And I'm like, no, but I want to know why you have yes. even any collection. Why, you know, what makes you nerd out and like lose your mind if you're shopping and you're like, oh my God, yep. <laughs> I can't believe I'm finding that. So thank you. And I, you know, when we had Mandy on the show and we were able to, we, when we were with her, we were in the Tiki room and with you now we're in, it looks like your Halloween room with all your wonderful toys and blow molds and uh, ephemera and it's distracting and I love it because it's just fantastic. <laughs> this is the first room when you enter our house. So oh, okay. uh, normally at night it's, it glows. We have all the blow molds that light up and behind me is monster toys, uh, a lot of which I've collected since high school. Uh, so one of the, not one of the first, but certainly one of the oldest things I've collected. Well, and you're, I feel like, you know, there's kind of two separate types of collectors, right? There's ones that start later in life, you know, after college or when they're, you know, just getting out of high school. And then there's other collectors like you and I, where it's like, as soon as we were shown cool shit as a little kid, it was like, okay, how do I find more of this stuff? And who was your biggest influence growing up? Like who introduced you to collecting? I don't, I really don't think there was anyone that I saw or anything like that. The only uh, real inspiration was, I mean, certainly with, with Ouija boards, uh, inheriting my grandmother's board and wanting to learn more about it and going online and, and learning as much as I possibly mm -hmm. could about talking boards. And that certainly inspired me to want to get another one and kind of keep it company and then lead into other boards. Um, but really when I was a kid and, you know, skateboarding and BMXing and things like that, I always seemed to be a guy that collected things. And then I found ways to, uh, pick up extras of those things and trade for things that I wanted. And it was always just part of that collecting world. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I, inspiration wise, it's just, I guess, lucky that I was able to go to yard sales and flea markets and things at a young age that allowed me to find things that I was interested in. And just that opportunity of, uh, really being exposed to just such a wide array of things that would pique my interest. That's a great introduction to collecting too, is right. Going and looking through other people's stuff. Like that's how it started for me was like 
the possibility of finding something that maybe my parents wouldn't necessarily buy for me originally, but if I found it for cheap enough, they'd be like, sure, whatever. You, there's only one time my mom ever threw something away after a garage sale, and it was this, you know, those like hard-bodied stuffed animals from like the 60s and 70s? Oh, sure. It was It was a huge pink poodle. And I bought it, and my mom, the whole way home, was like, that is disgusting. And I had it for one night, and then it disappeared, and she never fessed <laughs> up to, like, where it went. <laughs> and we bought it from this eccentric woman's house here in Idaho Falls that, like, I think everything in the house was, like, pink or white and gold or, like, lavender. Whoa. And my mom's worst nightmare, but I think I was in hog heaven, That's just, like, <laughs> picking all this stuff out. And you, have? did you grow up in Massachusetts, right? I did. I mean, I was born in Florida and only lived there until I was three and then moved to Plymouth, Massachusetts, where I grew up, went to high school and then pretty much moved into Boston in the surrounding area, you know, ever since out of high school. Yeah. Just kind of stayed in that general vicinity. Yeah. And I have I have only ever been to that part of the country one time. But I got to imagine that if you grow up on the East Coast, especially in Massachusetts, like there's so much history obviously in the state itself and the architecture and it kind of leads to i'm i'm guessing like a runaway imagination when you're young by being surrounded by so much history yeah i mean it's funny i grew up in america's hometown and so that history was in your face you know you're you're surrounded by the tourists that are there year round and um i didn't really have a much wouldn't say respect for it, but certainly no interest in learning that history mm -hmm. being submerged in it. Mm -hmm. Now, as I'm older, of course, I'm way more fascinated with history and being around it, and especially uh, being able to appreciate a lot more. Mm -hmm. But it, it's kind of funny that at the time it was almost a, a, a burden, you know, yeah. when you're, when you're a kid uh, growing up with uh, a small, somewhat of a small town, but nothing much to do. And then you just have the tourists that are kind of, um, more taken care of than the locals. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a little bit of resentment there, yeah. uh, but that, you know, as a kid, but certainly as an adult, uh, I care a lot more about that stuff now. And, and certainly being in Salem and the history that's there and being surrounded with not only the, the new England area and, you know, foliage and the weather change and stuff like that, but also just, yeah, the, the history of the, the buildings and the architecture and mm -hmm. stuff way more fascinated as an adult than I ever was as a kid. Yeah. And that's, you know, not that it's like on the same spectrum as being like in a historical landmark like that. Like we're really close to Yellowstone National Park here where we live. And it's that same kind of thing. Like you grow up with seeing all of those same souvenirs and you see the the tour buses of people that come through town and all of that. And you just kind of resent that area a little bit because it's so removed from like, I guess, regular life, you know? Yeah. But yeah, and now that I'm older, I'm like, oh, we're really lucky to live close to something that people drive hundreds of thousands of miles. Absolutely. Yes. That's how I feel about Salem. Same yeah. thing. And it's, you know, um, before like um, we started the show, right, you always hear like the regular degular things about Salem and all of these things. Then we've had a couple of guests on that have interesting ties to Salem that now make it a place that I want to visit outside of, you know, the Halloween season to see just the architecture and structure of that area. How long have you worked or how long has the Witchboard Museum been open in Salem? Well, the Witchboard Museum's only been open about two years, and um, but it, it was about a seven-year uh, search to find a space for mm -hmm. it. I mean, I had been going to Salem since probably like very early 90s, maybe 1990, uh, going there. So I always loved Salem growing up and uh, 
you know, once I knew I wanted to, uh, to do a museum, Salem was the obvious choice uh, mm-hmm. around here, not only because uh, it's the spooky city and everything, but mm-hmm. also the Ouija board was was made in Salem, uh, 66 to 91. So there's a local history as well. Okay. So when so growing up in that part of the country, is the same lore of Salem exist kind of everywhere? Is like everybody views it as the spooky city? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think you can't hide from the fact that, you know, you see one October here and you see the hundreds of thousands of people that come here. It is literally Mardi Gras of uh, <laughs> for goth, goth kid Mardi Gras. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is thousands of people in a very small. You know, New Orleans is a much bigger city. Mm-hmm. Salem is very small. It's just a couple of streets really where the action is, and it swells. Wow. I mean, the amount of people that they fit in the city in October is pretty crazy. That's incredible because I guess you know you hear about it, but you just don't really. Yeah, you don't grasp. And that was like before they made roads, like twenty first century roads. Like everything's just smaller in general, like yep. to get around places. So that's interesting. I, well, it's on my list definitely of places we want to visit mm-hmm. um, in the off season. Yeah, probably not not in October apparently. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I always suggest to people, and I know Mandy does as well, that you know if you want to come see it, get a lay of the land, kind of check out restaurants and you know shops without having to wait forty five minutes to go into a place. Mm-hmm. It's just better to come, you know, off season. So uh, we used to tell people kind of come in September. Now we almost tell people to start coming like late August, you know, oh, it, wow. the season starts getting earlier and earlier. Wow. Um, like this, I was there at the museum all weekend and this technically is September, but at this point it already feels like an October wow. uh, weekend. We had door people. We opened an hour early, closed an hour and a half later than usual. And uh, when I left pretty late at night, there was still a lot of people in the city. Wow. And that, I, you know, I wonder, I'm sure, you know, the pandemic and the cooped upness, right. Probably contributed to now people's fever to be like back out. In oh, absolutely. Yeah. Experiencing stuff too, to just like get out and go see things. And yeah, for sure. Be bumping elbows with people. Maybe not all the way. I don't like that anymore. <laughs> not after the last year. When, when did your interest in like Halloween start? Has that been a forever thing for you? Yeah, really it has. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, going trick-or-treating was awesome. Not only getting in costume, but getting the candy. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Halloween would not be as cool to me without the candy, Mm -hmm. you know? Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. I am a huge chocolate freak, candy bar freak. (laughs) And so that is the first appeal to it, of course. Mm -hmm. But yeah, growing up and being able to get into costume and uh, then the decorations and things like that. So really... Ever since I could remember, you know, Halloween has always been something special for me. That's what it's been for me, too. I don't ever remember a time in my life that I, like, didn't get excited for Halloween or, like, put a tremendous amount of effort into my decorations or my costumes. And we do this thing at my work. I work in a salon. And, of course, we always dressed up on Halloween. And I was like, well, what if we do a spin on, like, what high schools do for homecoming, like Spirit Week, where we just do a different costume Every day for the week of Halloween. And everybody was like, yes. So now we do like themed days at the salon where we'll do a category. And it's like, hey, you just have to pick something from here. And it's always really fun to like. And I'm going to miss it this year because we'll be in L.A. Oh, yeah. So I'll miss Spirit Week for the first time. We'll do it in L.A. for you. Okay, thanks. I'll bring I'll pack my (laughs) costumes with me. Did you? That sounds fun. Oh, it's so fun. We did one year. We did like just cats and we all just dressed up as cats and we changed the sign on the bathroom to say litter box instead of bathroom. And everybody was like, what is this? Like, it's the litter box. 
It was, it's been, it's very fun. And, um, I have always had an affinity for Halloween. And I don't know if that comes from being like growing up as like a little bit of an outsider and you just kind of start to align yourselves with things that are a little baby more macabre to most people and collecting them. Is that how it started for you? Uh, well, I mean, I, I love, I mean, I remember literally skipping school the day after Halloween, probably all my high year, high school years, just so I could go find things at discounts, you mm-hmm. know, um, decorating my room. I mean, I had uh, fake cobwebs on the ceiling for probably four or five years, uh, you know, before I was even in high school, going through school. So, I mean, I was always decorating for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, you know, going to the flea markets, I started picking up like monster magazines, like 60s, like uh, famous monsters of Filmland and oh, uh, monster toys and things like that. So, and then I, became very obsessed with like the Phantom of the Opera. That was my favorite movie. Mm. So I was buying anything Halloween and horror, just it all mashed together to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like too, you were like at the perfect time to be finding Halloween stuff for a reasonable price versus what it is now. It's, it's insane. You know, there's just things that luckily most things that I've ever wanted or really hunted down, I've owned them. You know, mm-hmm. I, I feel good. I've owned them. I've probably passed them on to somebody else who would appreciate them. Uh, but in general, yard sales and flea markets uh, growing up, they were a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at them now, although I'm still addicted to going to them and I love <laughs> going to them and I have no, no problem if I don't buy anything, mm-hmm. I'm not discouraged. I still love that hunt and I don't, it, it doesn't like, oh, I'm not going to go this week. I still go every week. But they're not nearly, it's like the drive-in theater or, um, you know, roller skating rinks or bowling mm-hmm. alleys. It's it's on the decline for sure. Mm-hmm. Not the way I feel, at least yeah. where mm-hmm. I am. And, uh, but I, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't deter me. I still go out. It just means I'll go to two to three flea markets mm-hmm. in a weekend and not just settle on one. Well, and it's that, I think, you know, every collector has it and it's that thrill of the chase, right? You go in kind of maybe expecting to find something, but you get a little pickier the more you collect. But it's for that sheer moment of seeing something on somebody's table and walking up to it and going, please don't be expensive. Please don't be expensive. (laughs) And you see the price tag. And then you almost like have to, it's like a poker face, like an antique (laughs) poker face that you have to be like, don't show that you know what this is. I found, I went to, uh, it was like an outside estate sale, yard sale, people that were like hoarders of vintage stuff. And I went and nothing was priced, but I had heard from a friend that they were really taking anything you offered. So I didn't hesitate to make a big pile. And I was, I turned to the corner and on the end of this table mixed in with some stuff was two Miller Studio Chalkware fish. And I was like, I literally went, oh, and I was like, keep it together. Keep it together. Because Yeah, it's that. And, you know, I grew up with that same thing of like, we went every weekend with my mom or I was going to antique stores with my grandmother and had that early immersion into other people's stuff. Plus growing up thrifting out of necessity and being able to find stuff that your friends weren't finding or they didn't know what it was. And then when you have your own money to spend on things, it's just even worse because you just have nobody to stop you on buying stuff. What? So I got to know, cause we ask everybody, what is your like estate sale or rummage sale or yard sale technique? Like, what do you do when you go into something like that? I mean, really for me, I have the best luck asking, you know, hunting and looking through things. I find more things by having conversations with people 
and talking to them because the things it seems that I'm interested in, they think that it's things that nobody are interested in. Mm. So they don't maybe put it on display. They don't think to put it out, especially, I mean, with Ouija boards, especially yeah. there's a taboo. There's certainly a, a negative, uh, you know, uh, thought that people have about them. So those sometimes those get hidden aside. And they don't want to put them on display because mm-hmm. they don't want to deal with people giving their thoughts about them, unsolicited right. uh, thoughts. So those I have luck by just having conversations. But even, you know, outside of uh, estate sales and flea markets, I find that just talking to people and going over stuff and letting them know what I'm interested mm-hmm. in and just building somewhat of a, a friendship or a relationship with them in some mm-hmm. way that that leads to way more things for me. I luck out more from that than I do randomly finding something. You know, I'm glad you bring up that point because I've noticed too, now I make it a point because of the podcast and hearing people's stories. I'm like, I want to know the person behind the sale that I'm at. And so sure. I, now I ask when I'm checking out, I'm like, well, what did this person do for a living and what did they collect? And the, people are always so surprised to have somebody interested in whether it's their stuff or somebody else's stuff or their family's stuff. And that's the same things happen. They go, oh, well, I, we also have this, but we didn't think anybody would want to buy this or, you know, we just thought it was garbage or those types of things. So that's a very good, there's your vintage tip of the week, folks. You got to ask the people running the sale, just be their friend a little bit instead of, yeah. you know, doing the slow drive by and then keep going. <laughs> I say my, my tip of the week definitely is I let everybody know that what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Any, anyone that talks to me knows I collect Ouija boards. Mm-hmm. So really meaning it no more literal than leave no stone unturned means you have to let the world know yeah. what you're looking mm-hmm. for. That's such a, yeah, that's a really good point too. Cause, and I also feel like too, if you have kind of an obscure collection, you kind of do that same thing where you're like, I don't want to open this up to conversation with somebody that may not fully understand what I'm after. But I feel like if you approach it that way too, they are more than likely going to be a little bit more understanding and probably not say anything to you about it to your face. <laughs> oh, it, it the funny thing about Ouija boards, one of the best stories I love to tell is, you know, when you carry a Ouija board under your arm at a flea market, people you'll part the seats. I mean, people will get out of your way. They won't go near you. Then you'll get people that will just point and yell at you for having a Ouija board. So, you know, not everybody, but that wow. happens. And for a dealer, I love asking someone the first week and they'll say, I'll never, no, I won't ever sell one of those. Then the next week I'll ask them again. And they'll say, no, they're tools of the devil and I'll never have them. The third week they'll say, I throw them away. I would never have one of those. And then I say, oh, well, if you ever throw another one away, let me know. The most valuable one ever sold on eBay sold for almost $5,000. And so, you know, I'd gladly take it off your hands. Well, guess what happens on the fourth week? I usually have a Ouija board. They have a Ouija board put aside for me. Mm. And the real of these boards, capitalism, tends to come through much louder than spirits or any kind of negative Mm -hmm. uh, association with the board. So. That's my. That's been my experience with these boards for sure. That's so interesting, and I I'm excited to get into that, especially the story with your grandma. But I am dying to know because, of course, we learned about it from Mandy. I gotta know where like the fake meat and KFC collection <laughs> came from because like I get the Halloween, <laughs> I get the Ouija boards, but when I got the picture of your dining room with the full size Colonel Sanders, I was like, <laughs> where does this come from? <laughs> well, there's there's two funny things with KFC that I I, I think is one, only recently did I understand, I think, why I pinpointed why I collect KFC. So originally in high school and stuff, this is 
you know, before the internet and, uh, you know, going to flea markets and, uh, antique stores, uh, I found a Kentucky fried chicken bank, a, a statue of the Colonel, just a bank. And, uh, for me, my mother didn't cook for me. I literally had McDonald's five days a week. I ate Mama Celeste the other two days a week. And so going to KFC was like something that happened like once, maybe twice a year. And Kentucky Fried Chicken was a delicacy to uh -huh. me. It really was. It was 20 miles from my house and we didn't go there very often. And so when I found that bank, I was like, wow, this is really cool. I never would have thought there was merchandising associated with Kentucky Fried Chicken. How mm -hmm. random. And I bought it. You know, I picked it up. And then later on in the late 80s, they, they started making the fake food for Kentucky Fried Chicken, like the play sets, you know, the fake chicken and oh, things yeah. uh -huh. and uh, corn on the cob and whatnot. And so I picked that up. And back then, there, were, there was not a lot of Kentucky Fried Chicken merchandise, you mm -hmm. know. So when I moved up to Boston, there would be, there would be these huge uh, toy shows. And uh, they would have conventions with like, you know, the Love Boat reunion or something like that. And right. I started going around and I'd ask people for Kentucky Fried Chicken and this one other item called a Barba Papa, which is like a French cartoon from the, the 70s. Oh, I wow. would ask for characters for that. And I quickly became known as the guy that was asking for like the weirdest shit possible. <laughs> you know? And so I like that because now looking back, I'm always like, yeah, I've always kind of tried to collect things that like were very difficult to collect. They're not easy things to hunt for, you know? Right. But uh, I basically have bought every Kentucky Fried Chicken Colonel Sanders item I ever wanted to own. And uh, yeah, I have the whole dining room, which you've seen pictures of. Well, my mother comes up. Uh, this is year. This is like 20, 30 years of collecting KFC. My mother's sitting in my dining room one day and she's like, hmm, you know, we have a picture of the Colonel in our photo album, right? And I was like, no, what are you talking about? Well, when I was three years old, when I lived in Florida, uh, the Colonel had been in the St. Petersburg par uh, parade and my grandmother had taken a picture of the Colonel on a float. He's like on a, in a horse and buggy on a float. <laughs> and, uh, that photo album, I mean, I don't remember those things because I was so little, but I right. looked at the photo album and it's me playing in that house, things I don't remember on my own, but I'm sure that it somehow influenced me to collect KFC is that I'd seen this picture right. of the Colonel in his white suit in a parade. And that somehow led me to be like, Oh, I'm interested, you know, in collecting that. So it's a very small random thing that somehow subconsciously was there and I'm sure influenced me into collecting KFC. Well, yeah. And it's like how our brains store shit, right? To be like your three-year-old brain must've had a ball at that parade. And then reconnecting that to going through that photo album, your brain was just like KFC equals serotonin. Yep. <laughs> we got to keep it because it was as you're recounting the KFC thing. My mom did not cook a lot growing up either. And yeah. when she did, it was like casseroles or maybe a stew or like something like that. Right. Yeah. But so we ate out a lot or we had lots of like frozen stuff. But I remember when my mom would go to Idaho Falls, which at the time was like 10 to 15 miles from our house. She would go, I'm going to go to KFC or I'm going to go to Fiesta Olay. What do you guys want? And she would come home with fried chicken and the coleslaw and nice. all of that stuff. Yeah. And so it's the same kind of like KFC feels like almost like untouchable. That's fast. Yeah. Food. Cause it's this, it was the same for us. Like I remember eating McDonald's and all that, but KFC was like a once in a lifetime mm -hmm. kind of deal. The luxury fast and food. And my, um, oh, I hear a kitty cat. Oh, I was like, what's that? 
been loud. I can get <laughs> no, it's no okay. I thought it was a kid. No, nope, it's like, he's gone. It would be a ghost if it was. <laughs> I know. But no. Uh, so I remember my sister and I would fight over the mashed potatoes and gravy, though. Yeah. Because <laughs> you had to have that to like dip your chicken yeah. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when my husband and I first got together, we were down around Thanksgiving. And that's what they had like as a Thanksgiving lead up meal was KFC. <laughs> nice. And it was weird to eat KFC in California and Thanksgiving because it's not anywhere like here in Idaho. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay. And like to see what everybody fought over. Oh, yeah, that is. Like, yeah. like everybody wants the coleslaw. And I'm like, eh, I could take it or leave it. I mean, it's good, but I'm not going to. Yeah, no. Mashed potatoes and gravy is where yeah. we fought. It's one of the only <laughs> times I'll like lower down to imitation. True. Is the KFC. Yeah. They have they have that right. They got it dialed in. <laughs> and so did did the the fake food and meat thing roll right into the KFC thing? Yeah, well it's funny. Like what's what's funny is meeting Mandy and and you know, she collected for a long time. She's been obsessed with things. I was obsessed with things. So it's kind of funny what on our own we were already doing. Mm-hmm. And then when we get together, it's like, oh wow, we have this in common. We have this in common. <laughs> Why are you doing this? So there was a lot of that kind of like, you know. Her, both on her own collecting it mm-hmm. and then coming together and being like wow now we have one awesome collection god that's so nice it's like vintage soulmates like to <laughs> yeah. come together and have your collections work seamlessly is pretty yeah, great it, it i mean we theme each room so there's mm-hmm. not like a, a hodgepodge of like random kentucky fried chicken with the halloween stuff or something <laughs> like that you know it's curated that way but um but I like it. To me, it's 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 like Pee Wee's Playhouse, or you know, every room is just kind of mm-hmm. got its own feel vibe to it. You know, it's definitely like after speaking with Mandy and having a couple of different people on that do the same thing of like theming. It was like I don't know why my brain sometimes can't roll over that on its own, but when you hear it from somebody else, you're like, oh. So I've started to do that same thing in my house of being like, okay, this is this room, this is this room. Like, yeah. let's make yeah. it so then I can, my my collections can be more spread out, which maybe is not a great thing. <laughs> to have um like oh go ahead john i was gonna say the good the thing i like about that is when you're working within the space and it's very defined by just one uh, type of collection or whatever that you kind of weed out the things that maybe aren't that cool you know maybe Mm -hmm. when you first start collecting something you kind of grab everything you see yeah but that isn't necessarily you're going for more quantity than you are quality Mm -hmm. so over time as you collect longer you're like oh wait that actually isn't as cool as this other stuff I'm hunting. And you, you'd maybe change the direction of it a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, what you collect specifically a little bit different than what you would collect when you went on. And so I think that helps kind of weed out, you know, keep it all killer, no filler, so to speak. Yeah. And I feel like when we started the show, it was kind of like uh, feast and famine, right? Like it was, if we were out and we saw something that we knew was vintage, maybe not particularly in the best shape or even something we would generally collect, we were just buying it. And the biggest yep. thing for me for that was the uranium glass. Cause I had never been aware of it before. So when I became aware of it, I did the same thing. I'm like a, a maximalist. Like I'm like, I gotta get all this stuff. Yep. And now I'm like, okay, it really has to be an interesting piece because and now realizing how much was made or how much is really out there. I can be a lot pickier about the stuff that I buy. Like one of the, but the, one of the things I never pass up and will always buy is Halloween stuff and Christmas oh, yeah. stuff, no matter the condition that it's in when I find it, because that's like a ride or die collection is that. And I think it's, you know, when we talk to people about what they collect and they go, well, I don't know if it's really a, a decent collection or it's this or that. I'm like, no, why is it, you know, important to you? Like, why does it 
make you excited because that's what makes your collection important. It's not what anybody else thinks about it or what their perception is. Mm -hmm. It's about what you keep. And I want to talk too about like, so you collected Halloween toys. Is it like a certain type of toy or does it run the gamut of what it could be? Uh, It's, I mean, it's, it's mostly universal monsters, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, things like that for the most part, Mm -hmm. especially Phantom of the Opera, like I said. And for the most part, I try to collect mostly vintage. I don't really tend to buy too many new things. Mm-hmm. But what happens is, you know, 10 years from now, you're going to regret not buying something that you could have easily bought 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So there's a line where I try to decide, well, is this something I want now or do I want later? And if I think I might want it later, I will buy it now, I'll buy something new. But generally, there's so much of it around mm-hmm. and it's not as much fun just going to a or, you know, a store that you, anywhere and mm-hmm. buying something that anyone else could buy, you know, hunting for stuff, finding other things like that is a lot more fun for me. Yeah. I like to have stuff in my collection that isn't necessarily in somebody else's. And I like when somebody comes to my house and they spend time looking at stuff and going like, oh my God, I've never seen this or I didn't know this was a yep. thing. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it worth it to me is like having pieces that bring up conversation in my collection rather than having something that like I could sell for $5,000. Like I'd rather have a talking piece over a monetary yeah. piece. Cause I'm also the same thing as like, I don't collect for value purposes really, unless it's something that I'm like, Oh my God, I have to have that. It's eventually going to be worth a ton of money, but I also love it dearly. And that's where I start to, that's what's changed. I thought, you know, a year ago I really had my collections dialed in and like what I liked and what I was always going to like. And I was surprised at how much it shifted as I became more immersed in the world of vintage and what's yeah. really available. Um, it, it's funny because with the museum, uh, you know, I put my collection out there. Mm-hmm. Well, that collection isn't for everybody. You know, I try to get now, I have, I have to buy totally with a different thought process is that I want to have the most conversations. Yeah. So I want to have pieces that maybe I don't care about whatsoever. You know, mm-hmm. maybe it's something new or maybe it's, you know, something I'm not drawn to at all, but I want to have it. I want to have put it in the museum because it tells the history of that, you know, not only the history of talking boards, but you know, what people are drawn to and what they might actually like. So mm. that's why I tend to buy, I do buy newer stuff uh, and some things that I normally wouldn't, I don't, cons- I'll call it the museum collection. It's mm. not my collection. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. But you know, la- in 2020, I added only two talking boards to my collection wow. things that were on my list of things I was looking for. Right. But I probably bought, you know, 50 things for the museum. Well, and I'm sure with the museum too, you're trying to paint an entire picture of talking boards. Yes. Right. And where you yep. are so steeped in it, you're like, well, okay, I know what this is. I know what that is. I don't need to look at it in my own collection, but other people who, you know, maybe do like going to that museum in the first place was a big step for them. Right. To step over that taboo. Oh Yeah. To, and then to be there. So you kind of, I'm sure you want them to see every kind of memorabilia and ephemera that would have gone with it to whether the beginning or now. Yeah, exactly. I, I, for me, the things in the museum aren't the rarest in my collection. They're not things that I'm trying to show off and, mm-hmm. and brag about. They really are the things that just have the most things to say, the most, the most questions the most answers that people coming into a museum that uh, maybe don't think they even need to learn or that they would, ever thought you know that's Mm -hmm. the best part for me is uh, having people that 
no, nobody in the world <laughs> is probably going to look at the alphabet and be like, huh, what's the story behind this? Mm, so, you know, yeah. the fact that anybody comes into a museum that wants to learn something about it or is already into it, yeah. uh, I want them to leave at least picking on picking up something that they're like, huh, I never thought of it that way. Or I never knew that the history was so uh, intricate and like so mm. complex with like all these different layers of, of history. Yeah. And your introduction to a Ouija board was surprising to me because it was something that my grandparents would have never, you know, they, the, my family holds the belief of like the devils in the Ouija board and all that stuff. And if you fuck with it, it's never going to go away and all of those things. So I was really surprised to hear that your first encounter was inheriting one from your grandmother. But I wanted to know, of course, I want to know the Grover Cleveland collection or, or connection and whether it's, you know, the full connection or like, what was the story behind that board that obviously started your fascination? Well, so my grandmother had this board, which I was never allowed to be in the room when she used the board. So I would spy from like a top stair or look through a window or something <laughs> when she used it. It would be her using it by herself. And she would, you know, literally yell out letters and numbers quicker than anybody could write anything down. She had a very strong connection to the board. Uh, it, but I never got to ask her any questions about it. And um, later on in life, uh, she had believed that the board was evil that it lied to her and that wow. she put it in a black trash bag and she kind of hid it under the couch. And so playing hide and seek as a kid, I'd be under the couch and my sister would be like, get with the Ouija board. And <laughs> I didn't know exactly what that meant other than right. I was scared shitless. Cause I was, right. you know, the board would lie. It was evil, you know? Right. So, uh, but when she passed away, she had gone through before she died, she went through all of her things and said, I don't want people fighting over my things. So tell me what you want and I'll make sure you get it. And very small family. And basically, I took her license plate. Her license plate is a very low digit in Massachusetts. Mm. It's one of the oldest license plates in the state. And so when I get pulled over by the police, they think I'm somebody important because I have a low <laughs> digit plate. No, I drive shitbox cars. But, you know, so there's, it's, I, I get the, most people ask me about it. So it's something I get to talk about my grandmother mm. almost every day. People point it out and ask me how I got it. But uh, so after she died, I had waited a while. And I told my mother, hey, I want to get that Ouija board. You know, I collect Halloween things. I want to put it on display with the Halloween stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, my mother was like, they, my mother and sister were both. It took about three years to convince them to get the Ouija board because wow. they would rather it left stayed in a storage unit in a black trash bag because they believed it was just as evil as what oh. she thought at the very end. Mm. So they really were nervous about giving it to me, thinking I would open a portal or no matter what I told them and said, no, I'm just going to put it on the wall. I just want to display it. I'm not using it. Mm -hmm. It really took a long time. And uh, I wouldn't say convincing it. It took a lot of like almost yelling wow. to eventually get the board. So, uh, and what's funny about it is the board is on display in the museum and people, cause people always ask me how I got into it. I like to show it off and talk about her, but I've just celebrated just over my second year now of uh, having the museum. And my family has not come to the museum. So wow. I can only oh. attribute it to the fact that they are that uh, freaked out by Ouija boards. So I have to ask, like, do you personally believe in that same kind of belief about Ouija boards? Or like, do you believe that they hold energy and spirits or anything like that? Well, I, I believe the boards work. A hundred percent. I believe they work. I believe they work based on what 
you believe or what the people using the boards believe. Mm -hmm. And not everybody believes the same thing. I think some people believe that they work through speaking to spirits or ghosts. And I think a lot of people who don't believe in that and believe don't believe in an afterlife, they believe that it's just their subconscious, which they call the idiomotor response. Mm -hmm. I think one of those two ways the boards work, but really it's, it's mostly user uh, what you believe, mm-hmm. you know, superstitions that you might have about the board or different feelings about the board are all going to play into your experience using the boards. Um, so for me, I don't think they're dangerous. I don't think they're, um, you know, uh, anything, anything wrong, <laughs> anything concerning about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love <laughs> that not everybody loves them. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. that people think they're a tool of the devil because, mm-hmm. you know, if everybody liked Ouija boards, they are not going to be as cool. I'll be honest with you. That's but, true. You know, so you know, I like that people come to Salem. They come to, uh, they get uh, one step away from entering the into the museum. They see the Ouija boards and they run. I mean, that is a real wow. happens multiple times a day. People that come back by themselves because the person they're traveling with won't come in the room with them, or you know, they come back clutching the arm of the person they're with because they think it's a jump scare. So you know, the the power that people put into the wow. board. I love that. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone, I, I don't think it doesn't matter what your belief is to me. Mm-hmm. You're right. And I, I could, yeah, I could see that too. Cause I think it is, um, like lots of things based in and around theology or personal beliefs or the belief in the other side goes into your own interpretation and experiences with that. You know, I feel like there are definitely things in this world that hold really negative energy, depending on the person that had it before, what they were, what their goal was or things like that. I do think that that plays, you know, I've picked up a vintage item and just went, oh, no, you got some, I can't, you have to stay here. This is, you can't come to my house. And I've experienced my own things with different, you know, some people call them spirits, some people call them ghosts, some people call them whatever. Enough so to where it goes, okay, there's something there that whether it's my brain or not, is a believable sensation that I've had as a sane existing person. And I remember one of my cousins had messed with the Ouija board and she was like, we threw it in the river and then it came back and we tried to burn it and it came back. And that was, you know, my first kind of stories around them as a kid. So of course there was like that fear that grows in you as you only hear that side of it. And I'm, you know, as I, the older I get, the more I hear about other people's experiences with it and their connection with whatever the other side of it, which is, you know, the beauty of the communication with maybe somebody you haven't talked to in a long time. Yeah. I think right, my friend Merch says it best where, where he tries to explain it uh, in a way that, you know, so many people, these boards are most popular during times of war. You know, they're really people at their most vulnerable, uh, really just looking for some kind of closure or comfort, mm-hmm. you know, using these boards. And a lot of people get caught up on the, you know, where's the message coming from? as opposed to the actual message. Mm. And it doesn't matter where it necessarily comes from. If that message is able to help you move on, then where's it ma- why does it matter where it comes from? Right. Exactly. Right. Well, you know, and maybe, I don't know if this will make people mad, but I feel like you can kind of liken it to any type of mediumship or tarot reading or readings from, you know, divine or spirit or whatever is that same kind of thing. It's the, it's the package that's coming to you in that makes the difference over the message itself i think for some people obviously you know across the board of communicating in some instance with the deceased whatever you feel is like is working for you and so i gotta know because you wrote about the grover cleveland thing with the board (laughs) what is that all about because i have to know 
So right now, the history with talking boards in Ouija is that in 1890, the boards were mass produced in Baltimore. And uh, one of the things I'm trying to prove is uh, that really they're a little bit older than that. They date to 1886 mass produced, not everything's homemade prior to that, but Mm -hmm. mass produced in 1886. And it comes from a Lemonster, Massachusetts company. And the reason I'm trying to prove this is because my grandmother, whose board I inherited, I believe that she learned how to use the Ouija board using an 1886 wedding present to Grover Cleveland. So Grover Cleveland was the only president to get married in the White House. He uh, received a witch board from a local Massachusetts company. And um, we don't know if that's a one-off board mm-hmm. or if it was a mass-produced board. We have the Smithsonian, the National Archives, the White House have all been trying to help us locate where oh. this board is. You know, there's no presidential library. So where did oh. this board go? Well, one of the one of the paths is if you follow the wife. Well, if we follow the wife, we find out that they... Grover Cleveland and his wife used to vacation in Cape Cod and um, that the she eventually opened a spiritualist church. Well, I find out from my mother who tells me all these things later on is that uh, my great, great grandfather became secret service for Grover Cleveland when he, when he would vacation up here, he would uh, run the train station. So he'd bring the mail on horseback to them and he would go hunting and fishing with them. And my great grandmother uh, actually got used to play with baby Ruth, where you get the candy bar from their daughter uh, and was mistakenly ID'd in the newspaper as being their daughter, uh, photographed in the in the paper. And so you start to hear all these connections of my family and their family. Right. I find out that my great-great-grandmother, sorry, my great-great-grandmother, who taught my grandmother how to use the board, was a founding member of the same spiritualist church as Grover Cleveland's wife. That church sits directly behind my great-grandmother's house. So in roundabout way, I'm hoping to not only prove that the board is older than it really is, but also that my connection or my family's connection to it dates from that same exact time. I mean, there's too many factors in that to like negate that that would have not like, been an option. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a few other reasons as well. There's yeah. uh, the planchette shape, the design of it goes from a paddle shape to a heart shape in 1892, the same year as. Uh, the, the company in Massachusetts that put out a letter to the trade who did produce a talking board uh, that said they can't compete against Ouija. Well, coincidentally, the planchette shapes changes to the shape they have. Um, and there's just a few other reasons. The very first depiction of a talking board is from 1886 in the newspaper. And it is a very close illustration of what uh, this company made in 1892. So there's a, there's a few different reasons why we think this or mm-hmm. why I think it. But trying to make the family connection to it uh, would be pretty awesome because, you know, yeah. uh, having a museum and I love the, the connections and circles that that I tend to run across mm-hmm. with these boards. And um, so to be able to, to kind of run it full circle that I'm into Ouija boards and I'm proving that really one of the first Ouija boards is connected to my family. Wow, that's awesome. It just shows that like really your path is determined for you way before you like ever have an idea of what you're going to do, right? It's pretty funny. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. I, I think that looking back as you're older and you'd be like, huh, I guess that's why I did that. Huh. I had no idea. You know, whether it's the KFC, the the, the photograph and the thing or mm-hmm. doing Ouija boards only to find out that, wow, holy crap, you know, now you have a museum and you're part of a historical society and now you're trying to uncover the, the real truth. I always thought, like, as I'd always heard, like, the game, like, when it started and when it was mass produced. And 
but I, I don't know if this is true or not that like, was it Hasbro or Mattel or another company like that, that like kind of put them in the mass market in the sixties or was it just kind of always around? It was always around. I mean, it first got mass produced in 1890 and it licenses in other countries and things like that. So it's, it's very popular, always a more popular in the U S than other countries, but mm -hmm. popular, but certainly by the time that uh, Parker brothers takes over in the mid sixties, they bring it to a whole nother level. The very first year it outsells monopoly. It, it sells over a million units just that very first year. So, uh, you know, most households have a Ouija board in them by the early seventies. Wow. Why do you think there was such a push at that era? Do you think it was like the Vietnam war or what do you think was happening? Yeah. I mean, uh, definitely, you know, these boards, they peak in popularity during times of war. Mm -hmm. They come out of the civil war, every war, they become extremely popular. Even today, uh, you know, we're not in the middle of a war, so to speak, but, uh, you know, COVID originally I had a lot of sales, uh, that I thought board sales that I mm -hmm. thought was maybe attributed to people being in lockdown and, you know, kind of sick of the TV and really wanted to like take up board games. But now we're well over a year later and I still have pretty impressive sales. Wow. And I have to start to think that maybe it's because a lot of people have been affected by death. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people know yeah. somebody that has died because of COVID. So mm -hmm. just like in a war, just like in world war two or, or Vietnam, where they become extremely popular, it, it has that same path uh, or similarities of, of why it's popular. Well, and at the time that it was first, you know, coming around in the late 1800s, I mean, you're coming out of several different things. You have the Victorian era of mourning and sentiment that then crossed over to the United States and then opening, you know, continuing that idea into mysticism, right? And seances and the occult that's opening up at that time as everybody is probably for the first time the most connected to death and telling the story of a loved one and all of those things. I mean, it makes sense that it took off in popularity. Is it a primarily like an American, North American thing? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, so there's no inventor of the board, which okay. is what I, that's like my favorite thing to tell wow. is that, you know, they really come about uh, by the mid 1800s and the spiritualist movement in Ohio, where people start claiming that they're communicating with spirits who are knocking responses mm -hmm. to them long story short is they basically start counting the knocks to figure out what letter of the alphabet that they're on. Those conversations take a very long time. So they just introduce like an alphabet <laughs> they board like where they kind of yeah. point to letters and numbers, wait for knocks. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they really just evolve over that, that step. And it's not until 1890 when they're mass produced, but they're using them right out of, you know, the civil war mm -hmm. where every family is affected by death. And, you know, death is viewed a lot differently back then, you mm -hmm. know, uh, when someone died in your family, you put them on display in the mm -hmm. parlor, which becomes the funeral parlor. You took photographs of them, things that today, you know, no one would think to do that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, you know? So to, to really understand the boards is to really try to look at the, look through the eyes of the time, so to speak, mm -hmm. where you're, you're looking at how people viewed it. And, you know, it just was not uh, viewed by the masses, by most people as an evil tool, the devil, Yeah. Uh, you know, it had that definitely had that connection to it. You know, they were called a devil board in 1886 and suicides by 1900 and murders by the thirties that all take place because of the Ouija board. Oh, wow. But the overall general consensus isn't that they're evil. It's that, you know, they're really just helping people uh, through their toughest times. Yeah. And, you know, we're so, I think too, so far removed from death as a society in Western culture. And I say it quite a bit on the show because of, I love the Victorian era. It's one of my most, it's so interesting to me that the, 
the sentimentality and everything that went around life and death in general. And I think that that is kind of the first thing that scares a modern person about that time is like, oh, like when somebody dies, we put them in the ground, we cremate them, and then it's over. But I think that it, it's, of course, during the Civil War, right? They, and a lot of people couldn't afford to bring their family's body back home to where they were, right? They'd yeah. end up with something of it. And then, yeah, you know, so there was really no real closure to death at that time. So, of course, you're going to you're finding whatever way you can to communicate. And okay, so what of what are all of the names that a Ouija board can go by? So the generic the generic term for these is witch board, spirit board, talking board, even devil board. And really only the ones that say Ouija on them are technically Ouija boards. You know, it's a it's a brand name, much like Kleenex the tissues. Mm-hmm. Ouija is the talking board. So uh, that's where even myself, I call myself a Ouija museum. It's even though technically it's a talking board, which board museum. Okay. Cause that's where I was like, I was like, am I using this term incorrectly? Cause I, now I have a, like, I've discovered all these terms for them that I don't know where I'm supposed no, to land. <laughs> none of us are sticklers. We'll all say we're Ouija collectors. Okay. You know, we all, we use Ouija as if it's just means talking board or witch board. Okay. Good to know. If I ever fall into that circle again, it won't feel like an imposter. <laughs> I'll feel like I, and I want to, so, okay. Is there a varied material that Ouija boards are made out of? Or does it kind well, of, I mean, do they align with the same thing or is it just expanded? I'm sure it's expanded. I mean, from the, the whole main boards in, in the early eight, the late 1890 uh, boards, those are all wood. And of course, over time, as they're being mass produced, whatever becomes cheaper is going to be the option they're going to mm-hmm. go with. So wood turns to, you know, pressed cardboard uh, becomes to masonite, you know, eventually just cardboard and, you know, planchettes go from wood to plastic to whatever. Mm-hmm, yeah. So there's, there's really, they, I mean, you could get a manufacturer today that could make a wooden board um, or like, I think the deluxe version that Ouija, uh, the licensed brand did a couple of years ago, they made a wooden board again. But um, there's a lot of people that have beliefs that like they could, you know, write or make a board themselves right on a piece of paper and that that board would work better for them than a store-bought board, you know, because they put their energy into it, mm-hmm. that it's going to work better. And there's people that believe that, you know, wooden boards are going to work better than say uh, anything plastic or whatever. And really they're right. You know, whatever you believe uh, it's going to make your experience better. So, you know, if you're using things that you believe are going to work better for you, they're probably going to work better for you. I mean, that makes That's a good thought. Yeah. So what kind of experiences have you had with a witch board? If you're okay to talk about it, like, have you, do you use them often? Do you, have you kind of moved away from using them? No. So it's, what's funny about it is I actually don't use them. Uh, you know, my grandmother had a very strong connection to that board and I've tried. I don't have that same connection that mm. she had to it. And I make a, I always say this and it's the lamest comparison. It's the <laughs> lamest analogy. And I really got to think of something better. So please, if anyone can help me find a better analogy, I'm a musician. I've you know spent a long, long time playing music. Mm-hmm. And uh, if Jimi Hendrix was my father, I would not want to play guitar. I don't have, I would be as good as he is. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel the same way about the Ouija board. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm going to have the same connection to the board that my grandmother had. And so I really just don't try. Uh, I do believe the boards work. Um, I just don't think that I, I have the same connection to the board that she had. Or maybe it's like evolved or like she put something on the Ouija board that was like, I swear to God, if John ever gets this out of this black trash bag, you better not work for him. 
devil board. He doesn't need this shit. And now maybe she's the one that's like in the museum with you now. And she's just like looking, like pointing at that board, like fucking watching you. Like eyes across yeah. the room. Don't you move that planchette. I got you in a chokehold, little demon scribe. Don't do it. I'd be afraid of a grandma in the afterlife controlling a witch board. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. I The only person I could think of that would maybe come through to mess with me would be my grandfather because he would think it was hilarious. Oh, yeah. He yeah. totally would. Yeah. He still does it. So he would. Yeah. <laughs> there was one experience I had where I was sitting outside at work and I work in the middle of town and I was sitting outside on the bench and I heard this like little like peep or like squeak. Right. And I look up and my grandpa and my brothers used to go out and shoot ground squirrels where we live. And I look up and there's this ground squirrel two feet in front of my foot looking straight at me and then like peeped. And I was like, just started crying because I knew exactly who it was. And then that fucking thing ran up to the toe of my boot and like propped itself up, looked at me, peeped and then ran off. And I was like, okay, hello. And I had just (laughs) done my grandmother's hair. This was like, I think a year after my grandpa had passed away suddenly. And I just laugh about it now. I'm like, you... (laughs) <laughs> turd i know you did that on purpose and that's how he always you know if, if something if he visits me it's always in an animal that he spoke about fondly and so it, and it's always a, like trickster like one time i was in island park and this fox came all the way up to my cabin steps and went around my car twice and then left and i was like okay hi <laughs> hello you're like how's it going i see you and I had, I, we spoke about it on a previous episode where I brought home a bunch of things that belonged to a grandmother of mine that passed away from COVID and we were not close. She was not a very nice person. And it's kind of one of those things where like thankful for her, for the family she gave me. And that's about it. And I brought a bunch of her stuff home. And as soon as I brought that stuff into my house, my toddler kept talking about ghosts. And he would be like, mom, there's a ghost. I can't turn around or there's four ghosts or like all this stuff. And then I finally just had to be like, listen, you old bitch, <laughs> you don't get to stay around in my house. Like I brought your stuff home and I brought it home because it alleviated the burden off of your daughter. And that is the only reason. And I was just like, you, this is not a place for you. You can't be here. These are not your things anymore. And if it continues to be an issue, I'm just going to throw them away. Like you just, and then Ever since that happened, whatever you want to believe in, my son has not mentioned a ghost. He has wow. not said anything about it. And I was just like, okay, I guess, yeah, all right, we'll believe in that. We'll- <laughs> that worked. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, you know, I, I am a firm believer in things and stuff and people hold on to whatever energy is like allowed to attach to wherever it is. And your relationship to that comes apparent or it doesn't. It's like the thing with the witch board, right? It's going to work for some people. It's not going to work for everybody in that instance. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the one of the questions I get asked all the time is, you know, has anything ever happened with you having these boards around you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, boards that a lot of people, and I've, I've received a lot of donated boards, boards that previous owners had bad experiences with, that there is a lot of negativity associated with those mm-hmm. boards, uh, sometimes sent to me with no return address. So wow. the boards oh. will find their way back to them sent to me with five pounds of salt in the box, you know? Wow. So there, there's boards that obviously have a lot of, um, have caused people a lot of problems or they believe have caused them a lot of problems. And, uh, you know, some of those are on display in the museum, but I get asked quite a bit like, well, how, you know, does anything ever happen in these mu- in here? And my answer, I would love to be able to say, yeah, these boards are flying off the wall and all this crazy <laughs> stuff's happening. 
these were all, you know, but nothing has happened. And, you know, these boards were all been in my house. Nothing has happened. They're in a museum. Mm. Nothing has happened. Even though people come in and will, you know, hold their chest and, and feel drawn to a certain board and say mm-hmm. they'll feel heavy, things like that. But it wasn't until recently when I went to, uh, saw my friends on a panel talking about uh, collecting items that were haunted that had caused people lots of pain and mm-hmm. negativity and problems. And um, my friend is a skeptic, doesn't believe in an afterlife. And he was on a panel with two other people who do believe that worked with like Ed and Lorraine Warren and oh, really wow. uh, they go in and they, they take these items that cause people problems and they put them into their collections. And, mm-hmm. and someone in the audience asked them like, well, how are you able to take these items and put them there? And there's no problem. And uh, they said something all pretty similar to each other that basically you know, I don't feed it negativity. I only show it love, you know, it's mm-hmm. a part, it's in this collection. And, you know, I start to look at these boards differently than I had prior. You know, I, I know that I love the boards. I know that I love talking about them, having people ask questions about them, but really there's no negativity associated with mm-hmm. these boards whatsoever for me, even boards that were donated because I know the history behind them as being bad when they're in the museum. I talk about those things. I talk about people's beliefs. I talk about why they're there. And so there's really no negativity mm-hmm. whatsoever about them to me. So, uh, you know, I'd like to think of it's It's changed the way I view the boards a little bit in the last couple of months where, you know, when people ask me that I can tell them, well, this is what I'm starting to think, you know, mm-hmm. from hearing it from somebody else. So. Well, and I wonder too, you know, if the boards are like, well, this guy's given us a pretty fucking sweet deal, right? We're on display (laughs) in the best part of, you know, back in their homeland, essentially. Yeah. And people are in good company. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, oh my God, Jim, you're here. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen you since 58, my guy. How are you? (laughs) You know, maybe it's like the witchboard, like family reunion, right? And they're just all stoked. Then they're like, hey, did you call Aaron in Arizona and tell him, like, (laughs) we have a pretty sweet setup here for retirement? I know Maybe. they're all doing this evil stuff so they can get back. Like, how many yeah. times do I have to tell you that, yes, I'm the devil? Send me back. Send I me know. back. Yeah. Maybe they're like <laughs> intercepting each other's emails and they're like, fuck, no, I, okay, Jeanette. Yes, the cat is fine. Okay, can I get back? <laughs> it's fantasy football <laughs> night. I have to go. Maybe. I don't know. This, there's an amazing episode of uh, the, the TV show Kids in the Hall. And, uh, there's one where these these kids are having a sleepover, these girls, and they're asking all these silly, you know, obvious questions of, you know, high school mm-hmm. uh, girls. Well, the rest of the kids in the hall are in, they're, they're demons in hell. And they have to stop what they're doing to be like, oh, I got Ouija board duty tonight. <laughs> and they got to deal with the kids. So what? that's the real hell. So it almost reminds me of, of that. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, son that's of a awesome. bitch. I got to go. No, it's 1230. And I said I'd be there by 1245. <laughs> It's a bachelorette party, okay? <laughs> I'm fucking tired of it. I, uh, yeah, that's, I always think, like I always talk about, like the hell isn't bad. It would be like the lesser version known as heck, which is everything's like yeah. just mildly inconvenient. <laughs> you know, like your step stool's not quite tall yeah. enough to reach the light bulb. <laughs> you only wear scratchy clothes, but they're still cute. It's heck. It's not quite as bad as hell. Um, I only have a couple more questions before we get to the estate sale walkthrough, but I want to know like what now where your collection is so vast, what is like, what does something have to pass to get into the Mandy John extravaganza collection party? Hmm. I, I think like with Halloween stuff, there's a lot of things that I've watched literally for years and I'm somewhat of a cheapskate 
believe it or not, when it comes to a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'll only splurge if like, after you watch something for years and you've seen the price go up and it's just unrealistic to find it at the price you originally set for yourself, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of years earlier. So once in a while, if I go through like a dry or dry spell, I'll be like, all right, I'm splurging and getting something that, you know, I normally wouldn't have paid that price for. Mm-hmm. And when I say that price, I mean, it'll be like $20 more. <laughs> but to me, right. that's enough where I'm like, I said it, you know, I stay very firm on prices. It's part of my negotiating. It's mm-hmm. part of how I'm able to rationalize, you know, spending money and, mm-hmm. you know, buying things to resell that help, you know, pay for the addiction that I have of collecting, mm-hmm. yep. you know? Yep. Uh, so to add something to, to there, the boards are easy because there's no rules to that. I'll buy whatever I want to buy. I have almost no, if it's something I don't have, I'm going to try my hardest to get it. Yeah. Uh, but Halloween, I tend to be a little, uh, little more strict on only just doing it once in a while and only adding in something that I've looked for, for a long time. Because mm-hmm. at this point, there's not too many things that I, I can't say I haven't seen because I don't know what I haven't right. seen, but there's a, of the things that I know that I don't have, there's only a few things that I really would like to well, add. Well, they were related so, to that 1930s Ouija or like the spirit machine or something like that that you mentioned in your email. Like there was only seven or four made. Oh, 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 for the for the Ouija stuff. I mean, like I said, I'll add anything <laughs> to the collection, but that would be a that's a grail yeah. for me. That is something that I would probably I would do quite a bit yeah. to get it. And if it meant selling, say, my Halloween collection to get it, I might even consider Ooh, that kind of sacrifice. Wow. It's that much of a grail. To me, it's not just the money. It's not just the time or the travel to yeah. get that item. I would really sacrifice a lot. To I think get that's that. the biggest. I would sacrifice 30 years of collecting yeah. my collection if that meant getting that. I think piece. that's the biggest holy so. grail we've ever had. I know. <laughs> yeah, I I, I I truly be- wow. I truly believe it is. And you know, I know there's four no there's it's a planchette, just so the, the, the listeners know. Uh there's a planchette to a, a very rare board that we know of four to still exist. I know where all four are. Oh and shit. so it's not like <laughs> you know. But I've had to be very careful as to how I approach getting, asking mm-hmm. those for those mm-hmm. four. You know, there's there's a certain etiquette, there's a certain rule, and there's a line that you're you're not going to cross. Right. You know, and so I've stayed within those boundaries pretty well, even though I've been advised on ways not to stay in those. Ba- what what I consider not those uh-huh. boundaries, but they'll be like, well, you could do that. That's totally fine. I'm like, eh, that's a gray area. I don't know. <laughs> So I have I haven't crossed the line yet. It'll it'll only be a matter of time before I'm like, well, what I'm doing is not working, so I have to try something else. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's exciting. I can't wait for that moment for you. I'm just <laughs> going to be screaming from Idaho whenever that happens for you. Cuz I didn't well, know you on. knew where they were. I thought they were just like, you know, the holy grails. Oh god. Now I'm even more excited and Oh nervous man, for you. if I knew where they something like my holy I'd grail was, I'd you. just be staring at it like forever well it's a it's a very tough thing you know because you know as soon as you show interest in someone's collection guess what they like it that much more so you know that's one of your that's one of the things that when you're going to look at something at a yard sale whatever you don't show you that you're too interested in it because guess what they're gonna be like oh actually i decided i want to keep this now i can't tell you how many deals i've gone many you know, made deals on Marketplace or Craigslist or something like that. And when you show up, if you're too excited, yep. 
guess what? They're going to yeah. cancel that deal. Yeah, that's yeah, that's where that vintage poker face comes into play, where you just have to be like, now this is just a piece of shit. I'm just taking it off of your hands. I know. I can't bring my husband anywhere because he'll get, he oh, has no poker face. He burns it every time. Yeah, because I found some vintage um, die cut Christmas and they wanted 10 cents each. And I was like, yeah, that's a good price. And my husband's like, holy shit, those are vintage. And I was like, shut <laughs> up. He's like a bark oh caller. Just to be like, like, you can't. Like no, that. My husband does it in the goodwill now too. He'll be like across and he goes, Isn't this like, didn't you sell something like this? And I'm like, This is why you don't come with me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know if Mandy told you the story, but uh, in the tiki room where she was when she did the interview, we have a, a Whitco mm-hmm. bar. Oh, yeah. Which is, it's a, it's a pretty it's amazing super piece. Cool. And uh, when we went to go get it, I was psyching myself up like I was Dwight, Dwight Schrute from the <laughs> office. I was like, this guy's going to pay me this money to take it away from him. I'm doing him a favor because I had to get into that negotiation mode. I had to really, you know, come up and get angry almost about it because I really was like, I couldn't just own it. I wanted to own it at an amazing yeah, price. Yeah. That was what was important to me. I knew I had the money to buy it at the price he was asking, but that wasn't fun. That's not, it's not a cool story. Psyching yourself up and be like, I'm going to get it at a fraction of what he wants for it. That's what I wanted. And so, you know, when I went there and I was all ready to go and, you know, of course I'm like pointing out what I could, they're not flaws, but I'm pointing out what I see are <laughs> mm-hmm. flaws to Mandy. And I'm like, look at this, this is like ripped. And she's like, uh, no, that's totally fine. That looks awesome. <laughs> and I was like, what are you doing? You're right in front of the guy. You're, 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 you're ruining this. Like double down, you know, Mandy. We'll sit back in the van. I know. Like yeah, back so, to the car with you. <laughs> exactly. You know, cause she was like, you're going to get it no matter what. Right. And I'm like, no, he doesn't do it at this price. We're, we're leaving. And I had rent, I had borrowed a van. Oh, shit. I was going to get it, but I couldn't let her know right. that. I was like, no, we're leaving it behind. If this guy does not come to the price I want, we're leaving it too and bad. She's like, what the fuck, and, uh, John? <laughs> oh, she, I, yeah, she, we showed up and the, the guy had uh, no, <laughs> he had no power in his house. It was a very sad oh, story, no. you know, literally foreclosure, all these things. And I know it's not funny, but I was like, well, okay. That's, that's in my yeah, advantage, yeah. you know, like, so, uh, you know, but she was like, she felt bad. <laughs> yeah, of course. Me. She's like, and no, I we're going to pay was the like, price. Feel bad for us. This is our money. You know, <laughs> like we don't want to spend a lot of money for this. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, and then you got it. And it's beautiful. For those of you that are curious about it, scroll back down in our feed to Mandy's, uh, post and see it. Cause we have it listed oh, and it's beautiful. Oh, nice. It's so, and then after our interview with her, she like took her phone on her tripod and showed us like the Madonna in glasses and stuff too from the house. <laughs> so um, I love that story because yeah, I'm like the the it's like good cop bad cop, right? I'm like no, I just yep. I don't know. I went through a house one time. I'll tell the story, and then we'll get to the estates. I'll walk through. I went to a house one time, and they were getting rid of a bunch of vintage. And I walked around and told them what a bunch of stuff was. And then I went back through and bought stuff. And it just went, we'll just take this price as like a finder's fee. It's like a surveyor who now told you what to look for on eBay. And I was like, does that sound good to you? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, perfect. I love this. Here's my pile. How does 150 sound? He was like, great. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to throw up. Okay, before we get to today's Estates I'll Walk Through, John, where can our listeners find you both online and in person? Oh, uh, they can find me in person at the Salem Witchborn Museum, which is at 127 Essex Street in uh, downtown Salem. Like literally... The street that everybody knows in Salem. It's the, the, the busiest street in Salem. Uh, and then they can find me on Instagram as Salem Witchboard Museum. And that has underscores in between each word. Yes. So Salem 
And I, of course, will have all of that tagged on our Instagram as well as on our website, themothballprophecies.com, where you can see all these things. We'll, of course, have photos and stuff up also on there so everybody gets a chance to really experience John's stuff and also Mandy's. Their collections together are seriously something to aspire to. And to add to that drama today, we are going to get into today's estate sale walkthrough. Not ready. For those of you new to the show, every week at the end of every episode, there is an estate sale walkthrough. It is completely fabricated in the sense of where the sale is happening, but all of the items that exist in the sale are very real and can be found online for purchase at some time. And they generally include the guests' favorite things or things they collect or stuff that somebody in the room has an affinity for. I'm looking at you. I know. She's looking straight at me. (laughs) So today's estate sale, and the only, so the only catch is you can only pick one item that's been listed. I was in really each hoping scenario. you'd forget that. Forget that part. You always want me to. <laughs> so you can only pick one item. You're responsible for finding your own loopholes. We will not help you. You got to come up with it yourself. So you could you could maybe have a buddy. It's up Sometimes. to you. It's up to you. All right. Today's estate's out. We are headed to an estate in your neck of the woods, John. And this family collected literally everything to fill their three-story Victorian as well as the outbuildings and carriage house. I already hate this idea. You're welcome. We're in Jill, we're in Massachusetts. It's gonna be great. No, I'm enjoying the scenery. <laughs> I just don't want to shop with you. So we start immediately in the carriage house, and we're picking through the long-forgotten decorations that have been in boxes and bags in here for a while. Do you choose the large lot of Halloween trick-or-treat bags or the lot of Halloween crepe paper and party favors? can only choose one. John, you go first. We'll make you go first because you're oh, the guest. I'll choose the bags. Oh. oh, see, he was quick. It's one of his collectibles. No. I need them all. Mm-hmm. Oh, but I do like a good bag. Mm-hmm. But I do need crepe paper. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go the p- bags. The bags? Yes. yes. I'm, I'm going to go with the party favors and crepe paper. Oh, good. We can share. We'll split it. We'll split it. I'll only do this <laughs> one time for you, Joe. That's it. You've used your- I know. I know how much you love your Halloween. <laughs> I do. I'll share with you like four things. Um, and they're at the bottom of the box. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Half ripped. All right. Next stop, we head inside to the kitchen and we spot some very special items on the kitchen counter. There is a set of seven ceramic pineapple tiki mugs, but they're the ones that the bottom just looks like a pineapple. It doesn't have the top frond, just like the body of the pineapple or a complete in the box children's playset from KFC with all the food. Oh, easily the KFC wins. I'm going pineapple yeah. mugs. Mm-hmm. You knew that one. This was a. I was. I didn't know which way this one was going to go because it really could have <laughs> gone either way. I am also going to go for the pineapple mugs. I love the complete KFC in box set, but my toddler that lives in my house does not care about things in my house. So yeah, and he'll just see it as a new toy set mm-hmm. for him. Yeah, he ripped like six pages out of the book I'm reading today, <laughs> and I was just like, "Cool, love this." I hope it's pages you already read. Nope, it's in the very end. Oh well, now you'll never know. Yeah. No, it's a mystery. I'll just be constantly being like, that's not how the book ended. You're wrong. So the last stop on the sale takes us up into the attic. Of course, we had to go into the attic. This area was overlooked by the estate runner because it's being run by the family and they just figured everything up here was garbage. And they were like, you know what? Fill a box with whatever you find. I'll make you a deal. So we go up, but there was a couple of things that specifically caught our eye. Tucked into the corner, we see this little glint of metal, right? We go over and, of course, start digging it out, and we see three spirit trumpets in perfect condition. They were just tucked into the corner, left behind. Do you choose those 
or buried underneath some furniture covers is an ornate hand carved original to the house is their seance table that they used in the house in the attic. I had to do a spooky mm. one. That is a very tough one there. Oh, I always wait for. I don't know. <laughs> I, I without without seeing the item, it's I, perfect. It's, it's everything whatever you, wanted you to be. ever wanted. Yeah. Oh boy, uh, it's the first thing that comes to your mind. Is like, oh shit. I probably would go with the spirit trumpets because those would have the higher value to trade for mm -hmm. something uh, that I really, 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 really want. So I'm going to go okay. with that. Okay, good job. I'm going to go with the table. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a good one. I can already see it in my head. It's a perfect It's table. gorgeous. And since we've picked through the attic, you've found some other stuff too. Yeah. Just, yeah. You only I figured as much. Item. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to go with the spirit trumpets also because they're so interesting. And I think that just having them displayed all year long, people would be like, what is that? Why do you have Why those? Why do you have those? So that's what I'm going to go with too. Because what would you trade them for, John? I'd have to see what my options are, but they have a high trade value because I know so many people that hunt for oh, those things. Good to know. Yeah. So, you know. I'm glad I put it in there for you. Sometimes, sometimes you have to pick things up, not necessarily you want, but you know you can trade. Like, I don't like to hoard mm -hmm. things. You know, like I don't like to own doubles of the same very rare board. I think that's kind of mm -hmm. shitty, you know. But if I hang on to it for a little bit of time and try to offer it for something that I don't have for trade, I could justify it that way. But I wouldn't add it to the collection permanently. Oh, I like that. I yeah, yeah. I try to follow that same thing too. Of if I already have it in my collection, I don't need to have four or five of them. Somebody else can have the joy exactly. of having them. That's true. Uh, John, this was a blast, and I wish I had you for so many more hours to just dig at your collections <laughs> in your brain. I really try. I hope we covered everything you wanted to cover today because. It's just incredible. And the next time we're just going to have to have you and Mandy on at the same time and just two bird, one stone it, get to the bottom of everything. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. And get to the root of, root of where all this. Yeah. Comes we'll from. bring a therapist on and we'll just go, what's going on with all of us? <laughs> Thank you. We don't have a problem. We display everything. See? There's yeah, no problem. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, if it's on display, you're a collector. If you're just stacking it up and not looking at it. Yeah, I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna get that on a shirt. Yeah, me too. It's only hoarding if you hide it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right, have I think this comes out before Halloween, so have a very happy Halloween. I hope that the museum does fantastic this season for you. I cannot wait to share this with our listeners, and so they can learn a little bit more about the history that you love so deeply. So thank you so much for sitting yes, down with us tonight. This is amazing. Thank you for having me. Happy Halloween, and I hope to see you in Salem soon. Oh, my soon. gosh. For Next sure. year, we have to be. To hear even more right. about the items we talked about in today's episode with John, stick around for this week's Curio I was so excited to sit down with John, first of all. As soon as Mandy mentioned it when we interviewed her, I was like, instantly, I was like, October, this is when we have to get him. This is, this is when this has to happen. I know. And it was, we were so lucky that he had the time to sit down with us because this yeah. is his busy season. Yeah. We got him right before October officially started mm -hmm. and he was already busy. He talks about it in the episode. He was already like up to his eyeballs and tourists and all of those things. And I was, I was so excited to talk to him, not only just to learn about which boards and all those things, but to hear his perspective on them and to hear his story behind how it all started for him obviously but yeah like he had a really interesting background 
Yeah. With them. And um, it's just funny to see how like he saw it as like an heirloom and then hit the rest of his family saw it as evil. Mm -hmm. And, but I mean, that just kind of takes in the whole aspect that it kind of just depends on your point of view of things, period. Yes. And, you know, I, I've been thinking about that like often since we had this conversation of like your relation and energy to certain things and certain things you don't want to deal with or be around or Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that I have, I mean, even in like the medical field, you, you can talk to a lot of medical professionals who work, you know, any point of it, but we all hate the full moon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't use the word quiet. Mm -mm. Like in Um, what instance? Like when the floor is quiet, like call lights are not going off, everybody's chill and all that. It it always happens when somebody's like, wow, it's really quiet Mm -hmm. right now. As soon as that happens, call lights go off, everybody needs something. Yep. I can attest to that for the time I spent working in a retirement home. Full moons were wild. Wild. It's similar to like you don't say good luck before somebody performs. You say break a leg. Yeah, it's really, (laughs) I remember one year, Halloween fell on a Friday, Mm. and it was a full moon, Mm -hmm. and we just were all like on pins and needles. We were just like, all right, guys, we're just going to get through this. Mm -hmm. I was like, nobody says anything. Nobody's going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. We're going to do this, and then just go home. And then all hell broke loose, and it was fine. It always happens like 10 minutes before you're supposed to leave, too. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. As soon because, yeah, our shifts would go. I worked seven to seven, and about six o'clock is when everything would break loose, or I'd get an admit from the ER that have all this stuff. And we always joke like your 12 hour shifts turned into 16 hours easily. Oh, God. It just gives me PTSD. <laughs> mm. And also, like, the other thing in the, like, full moons and then, like, working with the elderly, the other thing that I took, I didn't take seriously until I worked with the elderly was how serious, like, a UTI changes somebody's mentality when they are oh, yeah. elder. Mm-hmm. That would be, yeah. Yeah. That in sundowners is a real thing. Like, mm-hmm. the sweetest little lady will knit you a little scarf during mm-hmm. the day and then stab you with those same needles at night. As mm-hmm. soon as that sun went down, knit you a casket to go with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the dead and spirits and all of those things in this episode, I thought it would be duly noted to say what spiritualism actually was Yes. during that time. Right. Because that was, it was most popular during like the, between like 1895 to the 1920s. And spiritualism was, it was a new religious movement. It was a belief that the spirits of the dead exist and have both the ability and inclination to communicate with the living. They also believed that spirits were like more advanced and smarter than their human living mortal counterparts, which is funny. Um, And so they believed that like the afterlife and the spirit world was seen by spiritualists, not as a static place, but as one with which spirits continue to evolve. These two beliefs that contact with spirits is possible and that spirits are more advanced than humans led spiritualists to a third belief that spirits are capable of providing useless knowledge about moral and ethical issues, as well as about the nature of God. 
Some spiritualists will speak of a concept in which they refer to as spirit guides or specific spirits often contacted who are relied upon for spiritual guidance. Um, then there was this really funny poster. This is from Wikipedia that said spirit rappings and it was a popular song. And I'd like to know if it was more like Cardi B rap or like, we got to see if we can find that. I'm just going to say that needs to be found. Mm -hmm. I'll look it up after this. Um, so it was, it saw its peak growth. Like I said, 1840s to the 1920s, especially in English speaking countries. And by 1897, spiritualism was said to have more than 8 million followers in the United States and Europe. Really? Mo yeah. And mostly drawn, this is interesting, from the middle and upper classes. Which is what? like, are you so rich you just got to worry about dead people? <laughs> They're going to come for the money. Yeah, right. Um, so it flourished for half a century with text and formal, without um, text and formal organization, attaining cohesion through periodicals, tours by trance lecturers, camp meetings, and missionary activities of accomplished mediums. Um, many prominent spiritualists were women, and like most spiritualists, supported causes such as the abolition of slavery and women's suffrage, which is like, nice job. They were, mm -hmm. they were on the front end of that. By the late 1880s, the credibility of the informal movement had weakened due to accusations of fraud perpetuated by mediums and formal spiritualist organizations began to appear. Spiritualism is currently practiced primarily through various denominational spiritualist churches in the United States, Canada, and the UK. And this, um, we talk about like the, the birth of spiritualism with how he ended up with his first witch board. Mm -hmm. was that was it was definitely happening heavily in Massachusetts and kind of started in that part of the country and then there were traveling like preachers for the spiritualist movement that would go around to like the frontier and rural parts of the country to teach the what did they call them like ungodly citizens because they didn't have any god so they would right. go through and start to teach that and that's where we get into some other things we're going to be covering in this curio corner was different things that were used during that time, but we have to get into the first collection we heard about with John when we you spoke mean with Mandy. The, the fact that she mentioned his giant KFC man, mm -hmm. his Colonel Sanders. <laughs> yeah. I know when she just said that, I was just like, I get that. Mm -hmm. like, I need one. And I instantly went and found it on her Instagram when we were talking to her because it's life yes. size. It's life size. And it would scare the shit out of you if it was dark. Yes. And he's like staring at you, judging you as you go for the snack. Mm -hmm. Through eating meat and not chicken. Yeah. I mean, you can only eat chicken. Mm -hmm. um, but so this article I found um, through Interesting Engineering. Um, the sh it's the history of KFC. They're past in the tech building for their future. Whether you love it or hate it, KFC is without a doubt one of the most successful fast food restaurant franchises in the world. Kentucky Fried Chicken, or KFC for short, has grown from a back room in a fuel station in the middle of nowhere to, a, to become a de facto chicken fast food restaurant chain in the world. Today, it enjoys a massive global presence, and its food is enjoyed by millions of people every day. But how did it start out, and where is it going in the future? KFC started... Um, in 1955 by Colonel Harlan Sanders in Corbin, Kentucky. Um, but it, I mean, it goes back even there. It's to, Sanders was actually born in 1890. And at the 
age of 12, he left home to work as a farmhand after a troubled childhood. At the age of 15, he left the farm to work a series of jobs mixed with, uh, with mixed success. I mean, as one would be at a 15 year old. (laughs) (laughs) His various jobs included trying his hand as a painter, railroad fireman, plowman, streetcar conductor, ferry boat operator, insurance salesman, justice of the peace, and a service station operator. Wow. This is like, I, I will admit, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to be in college. And I swear I changed my major like every <laughs> other semester. And like, So Please. I figured this is how he was. He's like, I don't really like that. Let's go on to the next job. <laughs> uh, but by 1929, Harland opened his own gas station in Corbin, Kentucky. Here he cooked for his family and the occasional customer in, the, um, in his back room. Sanders, by all accounts, used to enjoy using the recipes his mother taught him to make. Pan-fried chicken, country ham, fresh vegetables, and homemade biscuits, to name a few. It appears he was, quote-unquote, dab hand at cooking, and news began to spread far and wide, enabling him to open a 142-seat restaurant and motel nearby. And he called it the Harlan Sanders Court and Cafe. Well, I'm glad he shortened it. In 1936, Sanders was honored with the title of Kentucky Colonel by the state's governor. Around this time, Sanders also managed to perfect the method of speeding up the cooking process for his chicken by pressure cooking it. This reduced the time needed to cook his chicken while retaining, in his view, the quality of the food. Things were going well, and he even received an endorsement from Duncan Hines of Ventures in Eating or in Good Eating in 1939. By the early 1940s, Sanders had managed to perfect his original recipe of 11 herbs and spices. This was never revealed to the public, but was, as he famously admitted, made of ingredients that stand on everybody's shelf. By the advent of the Second World War and gas station or and gas rationing forced him to shut shop as tourism dropped off. The motel and cafe limped on and after a brief uptick post-war, the planned construction of Interstate 75 in the 1950s that would bypass Corbin entirely threatened the future viability of his business. Colonel Sanders sold up and traveled the U.S. to franchise his recipe to other restaurant owners. KFC, as we know it um, today, was born. And they asked, like, how old Colonel Sanders was when he started KFC. And there's really not, like, an exact answer. But using the incorporation date, Colonel Sanders would have been about 65 years old when it was KFC became its own thing. In the early 1950s, Colonel Sanders began to sell franchises uh, for his recipe after he was forced to close his own restaurant and motel. His first franchisee, Peter Harmon, owned a hamburger restaurant in Salt Lake City, Utah. No shit. No shit. Wow. Over the following four years, Sanders persuaded several other restaurant owners to add his Kentucky Fried Chicken to their menus. By this time, Sanders had retired and was living off his Social Security income and savings. Using some of his money, he incorporated and took his recipe on the road around the U.S. 
1963, Sanders' recipe was franchised to more than 600 outlets in the United States and Canada. Sanders had 17 employees and traveled more than 200,000 miles in one year, prompting Kentucky Fried Chicken. Hold on a minute. What? Okay, this just goes to show that you literally do not know when you're going to make it. No, and I mean, that goes to show age is just a number. Oh, my God. Like, I don't know. Could you imagine, like, what are we going to be doing at 65, Sam? I don't know. There's no telling. Traveling the country, selling chicken recipes? Let's see. I'll find out in like 24 years. Okay. I'll let you know. I can't wait to see. This is <laughs> not at all how I expected this story to go. <laughs> at all. At all. I know. Um, and he, so after one year of promoting the chicken, he was clearing $300,000 before taxes and the business was getting too large for Sanders uh, to handle because he was in his mid 60s. Right. And By this then, is he also, was probably 70s. Yeah. This is in the 60s and 70s. So $300,000 yeah. is, that's a lot of chicken money. Yeah. And doing all that traveling, it wasn't easy. So it'd be like, no. you know, driving, railroad, Pan Am. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so he sold his business to a group of investors in 1964 and moved to Canada, where he lived until his death until 1980. Since then, KFC has conquered the world as the largest fast food chicken operator, developer, franchiser in the world. But uh, today, KFC is owned by the Yum Brands. I hate that. I don't like that. No. Sorry. Sorry it ended bad for you. Mm, We were good. We were up, down. I know. (laughs) Right down. But yeah, I didn't, as I was reading this, I was like, huh, huh. Also, the duck to Canada after you spread your chicken across the united states and then you're like bye Well, he also did canada too so i'm thinking he traveled up there for some reason really enjoyed the area and he was like when i retire i'm just gonna move back up here i gotta go to the north um also japan is like huge with kfc huge Mm -hmm. i don't know why i know that fact but that's apparently one that stayed in there over useful things i need to remember (laughs) it's a story of my life I know it is. Wow. Colonel. All right. I get it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, age is but a number. Mm -hmm. You don't know when you're going to find that one thing. So just keep trying. Also, sorry now to drive up the KFC vintage collectible market. Yeah. Sorry. That seems to be our thing. That's what we're doing. It's our fault. Okay. This is Sidebar Nation, but Jill and I found spirit wrappings on YouTube, and we are all going to experience this together. We're going to play this song. All right. You ready, Jill? One, two, three. Three. It's not what I expected. It's it's poppier than I thought. Is this the new Halloween bop? Is this going to show up on TikTok? Well, that's just it. I'm like, uh, how is this not back? 
I'm going to share it directly after we finish this curio. Um, I, okay. I'm sorry. We had to do that little sidebar nation, but I felt like everybody needed to experience that for the month of October. Um, I just wanted like that rendition for those interested is on YouTube, uh, by parlor mouse. So enjoy, listen to this, put it in the ox, get that Bluetooth set up and bump that shit. Okay. You know what? Um, we usually have, uh, Halloween at either mine or my friend's house. We do trick or treating from there. I I'm gonna totally play this. This is on repeat for the rest of the month. I'm listening to this on our way to LA. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we should have um, we should make a TikTok out of this. We have to a dance something. Yeah. Um, Speaking of weird spiritual things that existed and no longer do, one of the things we talked about in the estate sale walkthrough. This was a particularly fun one to write. Um, was spirit trumpets. And I didn't look anything up on them that day. Yes, I'm really interested to listen about these. I just saw them and I was like, those are cool. I would collect the shit out of those. And you could really keep them up all year. Is that a justification? Nobody knows. Who knows? Um, Do you need a justification? Not for anything in my life at all. Um, Hence why I own platform Crocs. (laughs) No justification. Um, so this article about spirit trumpets comes from austinseance.com and was actually published on the 4th of July last year. It was a wild year, 2020. So, um, spirit trumpets, they, they were most popular by the mid 19th century when the spiritualist movement was in full swing. There was table wrapping, levitating objects and direct voice phenomena. All of these staples of traditional seances made their first appearances during that early era. Um, But one of the ones that is rare to find and also was one of the most popular was the spirit trumpet. So a spirit trumpet is a cylindrical cone with a narrow mouthpiece that usually expands in three parts. So it was like a megaphone that would have been used by like... Yeah, I mean, spirit cheerleading. cheerleading. Spirit cheerleading. Yes, Jill. You See, this clicks right with you. Your brain gets it. I know. Um, so it was traditional to speaking trumpets employed by cheerleaders at sporting events. Um, spiritualists fabricated the first spirit trumpets from cardboard or metal. And that's old timey cardboard. So what was that like? Um, the first spirit trumpets, uh, were from cardboard or metal. They were sleeker. Um, like when they started to incorporate new materials, they were obviously a lot sleeker and there was more expensive designs that used aluminum or tin. And there was a retailer called Everett Atwood Eckle of Indiana. And they were like, look at this spiritualist movement going buck wild. Let's cash in on that with these trumpets. And they started making trumpets and they uh, sold them for two to $3 through advertisements posted in psychic power and other spiritualist periodicals. Order your death cheerleader cone by mail not unlike the ouija board the spirit trumpet was originally created by spiritualists who claimed that they could magnify the whispers of spirits present in a circle this is why some spiritualists drive spirit trumpets as the original hearing aids or ear trumpets to the voice of the beyond how do you feel about that joe so what you're saying is when i was in a cheer rally I was just calling the spirits to yeah. pump up the vibes. Mm-hmm. Pump up the jam. Pump it up. Yeah. I Victorian mean, ghosts. 
<laughs> do the doggy. <laughs> so um, some experts believe that um, that in Athens, Ohio, Jonathan Coons, who was through the mediumship of his eldest th- son, Nahum, that the spirit trumpet was born while the original trumpets were simple devices about two feet long and four inches in diameter. So that's not a very big like bell on the end. Um, for those of you familiar with the Mormon religion, simpler to the Moroni trumpet. Similar. Um, later ones became more portable and included retractable telescoping segments. Spiritualists also ringed some, rigged some trumpets with luminous paint to create glow-in-the-dark effects. You can imagine if they would have known that uranium glass glowed, they would have just... They would have lost their shit. They would have lost their minds. Um, so the spirit trumpet worked for believers. The active trumpet mediumship is better termed direct voice mediumship. According to Maxine Myler, writer of Great Moments of Modern Mediaship, Volume 1, the voices would speak through a voice box of ectoplasm, a substance taken from the medium's body, or through a megaphone known as a trumpet, the simpler way. So is that like the payphone of mediumship? I mean... Sorry, I left my ectoplasm at home. or cell phone. Is that like the new... That Was that the old-time Wi-Fi? The original Apple was ectoplasm. Was Wi-Fi. Wait, ectoplasm would have been dial-up and the trumpet was Wi-Fi. Yeah. Or a hotspot. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, So according to believers, these voices are sounds, maybe anything from whispers of a loved one to barks of a wolfhound. They came from any part of the room. Usually the trumpets will be placed in the center of those gathered for the seance. Um, Believers would then claim that spirits under certain circumstances can make the trumpet float and then stop at the person they want to talk to. So like spirits spin the bottle. Do you like, are the spirits just like, Oh wait, they got the trumpet out. Hold on. Guys. Mildred, Mildred, get your ass in here. They got the trump. They got the fancy trumpet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Get your ass in here. The least you can do is say hi. Don't be fucking rude. Mildred. This is the I seventh mean, seance they've done this month. They're trying really hard. I understand that they sold your recipe to the church, Mildred. And they really regret it because, look, now they need to, to make their famous pie so they can mm-hmm. win the fair. Mm-hmm. They need to know what that secret ingredient. Don't tell them it was dust. Don't give it away. <laughs> You'll never live it down now that you're dead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Um, the hearing device then supposedly takes over at that point and messages are made clear. So... In case you're wondering, uh, besides the direct voice phenomena given by the mediums, the trumpet supposedly also may gift the sitters with apports derived from the French word to bring. The apport is any object that materializes within the trumpet itself. Take, for instance, the story of Estelle Roberts and her mediumship circle as recounted in that uh, the great moments of modern mediumship. Through the trumpet, Roberts' spirit guide, Red Cloud, addressed the audience directly, and then Roberts ended her demonstrations with an avalanche of a dozen or more uh, offerings gushing from the trumpet like water from a tap. That spit. That spirit spit. That is... That I mean, that's clearly what it is. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of in um, Wild Wild West when he turns his ear trumpet downward and all the wax falls out and then puts it back up. <laughs> um, many of the gifts were much too large to pass through the narrow neck of the trumpet as clearly demonstrated at the end of the seance. Yet they still pass through without any outside help. We know what pinatas are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. We do know. So that's uh, the spirit trumpet in a little brief bit 
there that is uh, wilder than I expected. I mean, this whole uh, curio corner has uh, really mm-hmm. blown my mind this really? time around. Yes. Like, I thought it was, like, cut and dry. I did, too. Um, thanks for the surprises, John. Yeah, um, we appreciate that. So there was one person that we've talked about in both of these, in Lyotra's episode and in John's episode. And we they both talked about the influence of none other than Pee Wee Herman. Which, honestly, I'm pretty sure he influenced a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we are going to talk a little bit about uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, because that was... I think both of theirs excuse to have eclectic collections was that. And also, um, one of our former guests, um, Mexikich, Elrod, he, Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, shared her work on his social media. Yeah. And it was incredible to watch. I'm so stoked that she got that recognition. Um, This is from Wikipedia, our, and I, just so everybody knows, I donate to Wikipedia because of their hard ass work. So I'm just getting my money's worth here. So Pee Wee's Playhouse was an American is an American uh, TV series starring Paul Rubens as the childlike Pee Wee Herman. It ran from 1986 to 1990 Saturday mornings on CBS and airing in reruns until July 1991. I did not know it ran for such a short amount of time. I don't either. I remember watching it all the time. Yeah, it must have just been constantly replays, and I just didn't just forever. Notice. Um, the Pee Wee Herman character was developed by Rubens in a live stage show titled uh, The Pee Wee Herman Show in 1980. It featured many of the characters that would go on to appear in Playhouse, including Captain Carl, uh, Jambi the Genie, Missy Vaughn, Terry the Pterodactyl, and Clocky. While enjoying the popularity with the show, Rubens teamed with young director Tim Burton in 1985 to make the comedy film Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It became one of the year's surprise hits, costing relatively a modest budget of $6 million to make $45 million at the box office. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. After seeing that success, CBS went in and was like, hey, let's get this show. They approached Rubens with an ill-received cartoon series proposal in 1986. Then CBS agreed to sign Rubens to act, produce, and direct his own live-action Saturday morning children's program. And thus, Pee Wee's Playhouse was born with a budget of $325,000 per episode, comparable to that of a half hour primetime sitcom. That's insane. Whoa. And full creative control, although CBS did request a few minor changes over the years. Interesting. Um, Of course, he assembled a cast, and that included ex-Groundlings cast members, um, including Phil Hartman, John Paragon, Lynn Marie Stewart, Lawrence Fishburne, and Epatha Merkinson. Merkerson. Production began in New York in the summer of 1986 and it, uh, in a converted loft on Broadway, which one of the show's writers, George McGrath, described as a sweatshop. Rubens moved the production to Los Angeles for season two in 1987, resulting in a new set and a more relaxed work atmosphere. And there was a troupe of artists that worked on the show. Um, we have Wayne White, Gary Panter, Craig Bartlett, Nick Park, Richard Golizowski, Gregory Harrison, Rich Heisman, and Phil Trumbo. The first day of production, uh, right as Panther began reading the scripts to find out where everything would be situated, set workers hurriedly asked him, where's the plans? All the carpenters are standing here ready to build everything. 
Panter said, you just have to give us 15 minutes to design this thing. When asked about the styles that went to the set design, Panter said, this was like a hippie dream. It was a show made by artists. We put art history all over the show. It's really like, I think Mike Kelly said, and it's right. That's kind of like uh, the Google style. It's like those LA types of coffee shops and stuff, but kind of psychedelic over the top. That's a direct quote, by the way. Um, there were artistic filmmaking techniques that were featured on the program, including chroma key, stop motion animation, and claymation. Pee-wee's Playhouse was designed as an educational yet entertaining and artistic show for children. Its conception was greatly influenced by 1950s shows Rubens watched as a child, which included the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, the Mickey Mouse Club, Captain Kangaroo, and Howdy Doody. The show quickly acquired a dual audience of kids and adults, and Rubens was always trying to make Pee-wee a positive role model, sought to make a significantly moral show that would teach children the ethics of reciprocity. Rubens believed that children liked the playhouse because it was fast-paced, colorful, and never talked down to them. While parents liked the playhouse because it reminded them of the past. And that's the brief history on Pee-wee's Playhouse. Yeah, I loved Pee-wee's Playhouse. I was just behind the curve. On I was going to say, you were not really thought of. I yet. was barely eating solid foods by the time <laughs> it would have been rerunning. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Sam. I'm sorry. I... I I just don't, I mean, of course, like, I've seen it, it's iconic, all of those things, but it was not a part of, uh, it would have been. Yeah, yeah, it totally would have been. I just remember it was always bright colors, it was always, like, fun, Mm -hmm. and um, like you said, it, like, you just, I don't know how to explain it, but everybody in my age group who um, watched it felt the same. Like, it was just something fun to watch. Mm -hmm. And it didn't, I mean, it still, it had some serious tones to it, but it made it to where like little kids would understand and like, oh, you know, yeah, don't be an asshole. <laughs> the Pee Wee Herman way. Yeah. And I, you know, now that I'm older and with the show and stuff, I need to go back and look at those sets and see all of the stuff now that would stand out to me or like the art history stuff that. Yeah, and like I just remember it was like it was so many different aspects to it. And then, you know, even with the movie uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Mm -hmm. I mean, it brought that to the big screen. And I just remember my sister and I, that was like one of our favorite movies, watching it over and over again. I need to watch it again, especially the scene in the bar when he dances on the bar top. Yes. Classic. Classic. That was all we had today for John. Um, if you are in the Salem area this time of year or any time of year, I believe the Witchboard Museum is always open and there for you to tour. If you have any interesting questions or stories, I'm sure John would love to hear them. Um, gigantic thank you again to him for sitting down with us. It was a lovely conversation and I'm so excited to have that as a mothball prophecy because mm-hmm. um, it was just fantastic. Um, we do leave when this comes out, we leave for LA and just under a week. It's coming up quickly. If you are going to be in LA and you've listened to this episode, let us know. Send us a DM. We would love to see you while we're there. If you're a mothballer, of course. We're going to have really cool stickers and stuff with us. I'm very excited. Um, To see everything that we talked about on today's episode, be sure to run over to our Instagram, The Mothball Prophecies Original. If you like the show, please leave us a review or share us with a friend. We would love your friends to find us who love vintage and are the black sheeps of their family. We'd love to have them here. 
Right now, we would like to thank some of our favorite people, our patrons. Without them, a lot of the show would not be possible and traveling would also not be possible. So our endless gratitude to all of you. We've actually started to put together really great October bags. So if you're listening to this and you have not joined the Patreon, join to get the exceptional holiday bags that are going to be coming out over the next couple of months. Right now, we would like to thank Katrina and Erica in Arizona. Gray in Colorado. Emily and Crystal in Nevada. Ruth in British Columbia. Ruby and Autumn in Ohio. Aaron in Wisconsin. RJ in Florida. Gina in South Carolina. Julia in Sweden. Jasmine in Kentucky. Kyla in Indiana. Javier, Shanna, Mandy, and Riley in California. Betty, Lisa, Aaron, TC Lionel, Melissa, Christina, Becky, and Ashley in Idaho. A gigantic thank you to our wonderful team behind the scenes here at the Mothball Prophecies Gray for making us sound like we know what we're doing and making the show make sense week after week after week. Thank you. Yes, and thank you to Spellcheck who makes sure our grammar is correct. Mm-hmm. Makes us look very good on paper. The best on paper. As always, we hope you find some good shit. And I hope you are looking under the tables, around the tables, Mm -hmm. on top of shelves, and in closets. Mm -hmm. And asking them, is there more for sale? Yes. Bye. See ya.